0: You'll reach for your Bible and stand with me and turn to Psalm 36. That will be the text we will use for Pastor Chris's sermon this morning. Psalm 36, if you don't have your Bible with you, there's a Pew Bible right in front of you. You can find it on page 549 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 36, as Pastor Chris kind of concludes the Refuge for the Nation, our World Outreach theme and the sermon theme before the week before our celebration and now after this this week after. So follow along, Psalm 36, as I read out loud. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the root of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we just thank you for the refuge that you sent to us in your Son. Help us to just continue to to reach out to those around us and live as examples to you and uh, examples of you to the people around us. Help us to have open hearts and minds and just be with Pastor Chris. We thank you for his, his study and his uh, his leadership and just ask that you would uh, just open our hearts and minds to to learn what you would have for us today and just apply. and uh, And, Lord, to make your name known as a refuge for all people. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: It's just a beautiful, beautiful weekend, and I'm glad you're here, and as Zach has prayed, I hope our hearts are expecting good things. But you may be wondering, now, wasn't World Outreach last week? Isn't that over? The, the flags are gone. It isn't ha- Haven't we moved on? Why are we continuing to talk about last week's WOC? Well, there's one simple reason. Here at LifeBridge, we don't want to take missions off the shelf once a year, like a bunch of Christmas lights. Maybe you're beginning to think about that. Put them up on the house, decorate the tree, and then take it down and put it away until next year. That's not what we want to do with missions. We call our missions emphasis World Outreach Celebration because we want to celebrate our outreach to the world all year long, and every day of the week. You see, we want to celebrate missions like Kirk Polo plays Christmas music. I wish he was here to hear this, but he plays it all year long. And that's what we want to do with missions. Our annual WOC is not just about celebration. It's first and foremost about application. Let me take a moment. I just want to thank each and every one of you that took the time to come participated especially those that served behind the scenes and and did many things to make that a great week it was an awesome week and people don't see what you do and they don't know what you do but God sees and we are appreciative also it was just a great week it was a great week one of the best and I know I say that every year but that's because God in his grace "...has enabled us to have outstanding celebration of world missions." But listen, God's grace isn't given for our enjoyment only. We are to enjoy, last week, we are in to enjoy, as we're see in this psalm, the benefits of God's grace. But God's grace is also given for our empowerment. The W.C. is not just a celebration, it's about application... We don't want to just be a church with missions, we want to be a church that's on mission. And so this morning, I want to help us with our application in light of last week's celebration. Our theme, as you can know and still see, is Jesus is the refuge for the nations. And as his followers, we are to both be a refuge, like he was in His earthly ministry, but also to proclaim Him as the refuge for all who need Him. I hope many of you made a commitment to be that refuge. I hope you made a commitment to be involved in missions through LifeBridge, whether that's by learning more and, and having a greater love, whether that's by praying more or giving more through faith promise, whether that's through going Here at home as well as sending and taking part in that or whether that's through mobilizing and welcoming Whatever that is today's message is to help you persevere in keeping those commitments that commitment to be a refuge Now you may be here and say you know what? I I I just I didn't take part last week. I haven't made a commitment Uh, That's okay Because this message will help you to make that commitment It will motivate you to keep that commitment. And so you can do that both during the message and at the end of the message. The point is, we're going to look at Psalm 36 to see the need to persevere as a refuge for the nations. And at the heart of this song by David is verse 7. And you heard Zach read the theme of our uh, world outreach. Look at verse 7. How precious... Is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind, that is all the nations, take refuge in the shadow of your wings." Now, Psalm 36 is, a, is an amazing. It's only 12 verses, but it has so many melodies or so many refrains. I'm not b- big on understanding music, so I don't know what to call them. I'm calling them melodies. But there's a royal melody in this psalm. If you look at the superscription, that's the description before the psalm begins. It's a song written by David, and it, it tells us what servant leadership thinks About the nations. It's a lament melody that cries over the depravity of mankind. We see that in the first four verses. It's a praise melody that praises God's unchanging character and compassion. That's the verses five through nine. And then it ends with a prayer melody that asks the Lord to help us to persevere and until his purposes are finally accomplished. That's verses 10 through 12. And yet in the middle of this, at verse 3, it's also a wisdom psalm. There's a melody of wisdom. This psalm gives us God's perspective on the nations. And when you get God's perspective, you're enabled and empowered to persevere to live for his purposes. But there's also a prophetic melody in this verse, and I don't want to get bogged down on this, but there's a translation question in verse 1, some, like your uh, CSB Bible or your net Bible, translates the first verse, an oracle within my heart. In other words, a prophecy to David about the need of the nations, a prophecy about the depravity, a revelation of the depravity of man. But here in the ESV, it's, it's translated as sin speaking to the heart of the sinner. So whether it's a prophetic revelation or a powerful personification of sin, the point is the same. And it's this. Because rebels desperately need a refuge, we must persevere in proclaiming jesus as the refuge for the nations we can't pack it up we can't think oh well i did my thing and i did more than others because i did this or that and therefore i've checked that off missions for the year we need to persevere in proclaiming and so in this verse you have four perspectives or motivations that will help you keep your commitment. I hope you made one. I hope you'll make one by the time we're done. But it will help you to resist the temptation to not keep your commitment. We all struggle with that. It will help you to overcome obstacles to keeping your commitment. That happens. It will help you to forsake sin that distracts and derails you from doing that which God has spoken to you. And so with that in mind, keep in your mind, okay, what have I committed to the Lord? What has he said to me in this past week? And what might hinder me from keeping that commitment? So let's look at the first perspective, and it's simply this. The need for a refuge grows daily. The need for a refuge among the nations grows daily. And we see this in verses 1 through 4. Why do you and I need to persevere as a refuge for the nations? Because their need for a refuge from the wrath of God grows every day. Apart from hearing about Jesus and running to Him as their refuge, all people are helpless and hopeless before the holiness of God. Now, verses 1 through 4 are some of the most powerful verses in the Bible describing the total depravity of humanity. They are quoted by the Apostle Paul in his sobering summary of man's sinfulness in Romans 1 through 3. They are the Old Testament equivalent of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where Paul talks about the depravity and the wickedness of man's heart. Verses 1 through 4 reveal one clear reason why we need a refuge, and that need grows every day, and it's this. We are one race with one problem, and that problem is this. Our hearts are wicked, and our view of God is warped. That's verses 1 through 4. Our hearts are wicked, and our view of God is warped. Those without Christ have a wicked heart and a warped view with God that will lead them to destruction, if not in this life, then in the life to come. Uh, Sin, if you look at verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked where? Deep in his heart. Listen, sin is a heart issue that we are helpless to ever change. I can't get in there and change my heart. I can't get into you and change your heart. We possess a heart of rebellion. Our hearts are wicked. Then, look, it says, there is no fear of God before our eyes. That what's, that's what makes our hearts wicked. Ultimately, sin is a heart issue, but it's a God issue. And we are hopeless to ever conquer sin without a right view of God. Here's how the Net Bible translates this verse, and it's, it's, it's powerful. Listen. An evil man is rebellious to the core. He does not fear God, for he is too proud to recognize and give up his sin. And listen, don't say, well, good thing I'm not an evil man. No, that's all of humanity, okay? And you say, well, what authority do you have to say that about me? Well, I have none, but God says it in Romans 1 through 3, where Paul lays out Jew, Gentile, good people, Uh, perverse people, it doesn't matter who you are, religious, irreligious, they are all rotten to the core. And here's the reality. The need grows because there's more rebels are born every day with wicked hearts. Our own beloved Dane and Dana Jensen added to that number this week, okay? And we rejoice with them. But you know what? I love praying with newborn babies. With their parents. But you know what? I never once have prayed, Lord, don't let this baby become a sinner. Because that's already been done. That happened at the moment of conception. We are sinners by birth and by choice. And Dana and Dana are in those first weeks where they start learning that in a experiential way. And it will only grow. Is that right, parents? Why? Because this is who we are. Do you realize the current population is 7.7 billion? And two-thirds of those have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that it has taken all of human history until the 1800s for the world population to reach 1 billion? A second billion was achieved 130 years later. The third billion in 30 years. The fourth billion in 15 years. And the fifth billion in only 13 years. And that was 1987. I remember preaching missions to young people in grad school and saying 5.5 billion people on this planet. Well, it's 7.7 billion. Do you realize that during the 20th century alone, the population in the world has grown from nearly 2 billion to 6 billion? Do you realize that in 1970, there was roughly half as many people on this planet as there are right now? And do you know that the projected population of the world in 2050 is nearly 10 billion people? And every one of those are born rotten to the core with the depravity of man started and inherited from their great-great-great-grandpa, Adam and Eve. And more rebels die every day with a warped view of God. Every second, two humans, nearly 1.8, I don't know what that 0.8 person looks like, but every second... Two people die, and four people are born. You just add up what's going to be, you know, at the end of this sermon. Listen, the need is growing daily. But we've looked at birth projections, we're looking at death projections, but what's the projection of sin? Well, look at verses 3 and 4, because here is what sinners produce. Here is how sin grows every day. Here's why we need a refuge to be delivered from ourselves. Our depravity deceives us into thinking three things. So if you look at verses 3 and 4, the words of my mouth are trouble, that's trouble caused by wickedness, and deceit. And and, and look at verse 2. It says, he himself... He flatters himself. He deceives himself in his own eyes that his iniquity can't be found out and hated. In other words, we are deceived about these three things. So let me give them to you. First of all, we're deceived by our sin into thinking God is not as holy as God says he is. You see, here's how we think. Here's how we flatter ourselves. We flatter ourselves in our sin by saying God doesn't see it. And yet the Bible says, he is all-knowing. We flatter ourselves to think that God doesn't care about my sin. He cares about those really bad guys doing really bad things. But my things, he, know, you know, he has an exception for me. He doesn't care about my sin. And yet God is all-present, and he sees, and you can't hide, you can't cover it, you can't lie enough to keep him knowing about our heart. And we think God doesn't do anything about our sin because we sin and no lightning bolt falls and we sin some more and and we enjoy it and we go and we go and we think God won't do anything. But God is all-powerful and He will judge. Therefore, we do not fear God like we should. We think only really bad people who do really bad things will have to answer to God for their sin. That's just not true. We think... Besides, we have this view of God to think, well, he's loving and he's forgiving and he's always ready to do that. Well, you're right. That's the point of this message ultimately. But the reality is, how does he save people? And is there a time when there's no longer a chance to be saved? Secondly, our depravity deceives us to think we are not as sinful as God says we are. So notice... We don't think our sin will be found out and we don't hate our sin. See, here's the thing. We don't see our sin as sinful. We don't grasp the sinfulness of sin. And the reason is, we don't see God as He is, therefore we don't see our sin as we are, therefore we don't hate sin. Do you hate your sin? Do you hate what sin is doing to you? Do you hate... That even though you may be born again, you still have a sin nature and you're still tempted and you're, you you do what you don't want to do and you don't do what you know you ought to do? Do you hate sin? We should because third, our depravity deceives us into thinking sin is not as deadly as God says it is. God is not as holy as he says he is. We're not as sinful as he says we are. And sin is not as deadly as, we, as he says it is. And therefore, in verses 3 and 4, we plot and promote. We promote sin with our mouths. And we plot sin on our beds, in our minds. And then we pursue sin as our mode in life. You ever heard what's your M.O.? Modus operandi. Or opera, I haven't worked on my Latin lately. It's your MO. Well, you know what the, the MO for sinners? That's verses 3 and 4. Our MO is this. We promote sin from our mouths. We plot it in our minds as we lay in our beds. And we pursue it as our manner of life. Now listen. We're not going to persevere in proclaiming Jesus as a refuge if we don't see people and their sin from God's perspective that's just the fact but to do that we've got to see God for who he is he's holy and he hates sin and he judges sinners and we got to see ourselves for who we really are people are born wicked with a depraved heart that will only plot pursue and promote sin and we got to see sin for what it really is it's deadly It's destructive. It's not to be played with. Young people, this is not something to take lightly. Older people, it's still a struggle. But look at verse 12. Here's the outcome of sin. Look at verse 12. There, where? In the future. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down and they are unable to rise. That's the result of sin. And here's the reality. Nothing cuts the cord of missions like thinking that God will overlook the sin of those who have never heard. Nothing will cut the passion for missions like thinking that God in his mercy will end up saving everyone in the end. Nothing will hinder your motivation for missions like thinking that people have a second chance at salvation after they die. This is simply not who our God is. Now, there are some who are involved in missions who think this first point really is kind of like a, should. well, it's just not a great motivation for missions. They think the glory of God is the, the ultimate motivation. And indeed, it is the ultimate, but it's not the only. This David apparently thought, thinking about sin and sinners and God's view of it was important. He spent the first four verses on it. Paul, in preaching the gospel to the Romans, apparently thought it was important to talk about sin and the condition of man because he spent three chapters out of 16 laying the foundation for his missionary letter, the book of Romans. Listen, beloved, if you're not motivated, you think about the need. That grows daily. You think about your need before you found a refuge in Christ. You think about how you struggle with sin even though you have been forgiven and declared just and righteous. And think about those who have never heard. Listen, we've got to persevere in our commitments because the need for a refuge is growing every day. Secondly, there is hope. And that's the second perspective I want you to get in verses 5 and 6. The hope of a refuge never changes. The hope of a refuge never changes. There's so, I mean, there's such a contrast in verses 1 through 4 to 5 through 6. In 1 through 4, we're taken to the depths of human depravity. And in verses 5 and 6, we're taken to the heights of God's glorious attributes and nature and compassion. You see, the hope of a refuge never changes because it's rooted in God's unchanging character. Look at verses 5 and 6. They're worthy of being memorized. They're worthy of your meditation. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. Wow, think about that. Here's our hope. Listen, the hope of a refuge is not being more religious. The hope for a refuge is not reasoning your way to God. It's not working your way to God. The hope of a refuge has to come from God and his compassionate character. Isn't that good? Now, here's four reasons why there's hope for every rebel everywhere. And it's all rooted in this. The Lord's character is unchanging. These verses reveal the attributes of God that if you're familiar with your Old Testament are first revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. And these attributes come up again and again and again in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. You see, there's hope because God's loyal to who he is and who he is is awesome. So his character is unchanging. But secondly, the Lord's compassion in these verses is unlimited. His compassion is unlimited. Two of the greatest attributes of God's character are found in verse uh, verse 5. In the ESV, it's called steadfast love. Some of your Bibles have loving kindness. I like to translate it, his loyal love. And then his faithfulness. You put loyal love and faithfulness together and you've got the God of the Bible. And here's the reality. Loyal love speaks of his covenant love for those who come to him and seek refuge. Listen, when you come to him as a refuge, he commits to you a loyal love that will never let you down. That will never depart from you. That will always meet your needs. Maybe not like you want him to, but meet you at the deepest needs of your heart. And then he combines that with faithfulness. And that faithfulness speaks of his covenant promise keeping. He's like, look, I promised to love you. And guess what? I'm a promise keeper. I am faithful. Notice how these both these attributes extends to the heavens and reaches to the sky. The point is, they're unlimited. Amen? You can't outsend God's loyal love to you when you run to Him for refuge. You can't outsend it. But understand this His loyal love transforms us to want to sin less and less. That's just good news. His compassion is unlimited. This, this word, loyal love, loving kindness, steadfast love, is the key. Uh, the key idea is it's the Hebrew word Kessed. Hessed is sometimes how it's pronounced. Uh, Michael Card, that singer author, he's wrote a lot about this. He studied this. I love his definition. He kind of sums up this all-encompassing word this way. Hesed speaks of the one who owes us nothing, but gives us everything. That is our God. If you run to Him. a refuge. Third, the Lord's conduct is unfathomable. His conduct is unfathomable. He's not just loving kindness and faithfulness. Look at verse six. He's righteousness and judgment. And those judgment, his judgment and his righteousness speaks of his conduct and his conduct is stable like a mountain. You can count on God to be consistent in how he does things. But here's the thing, it's as deep as the oceans. So don't think you can figure out why God does the things He does. You can count on Him to be loyal. You can count on Him to be be faithful. You can count on Him to be right. And you can count His judgments to always be just. But don't think that you can understand them or that we have a right to criticize them. Because they're deep. They're deep. They're deep. So deep, we're humans. You know there's parts of the ocean that no man has ever been to? They're that deep. They're that deep. And so the Lord's conduct is unfathomable. I like what Derek Kidner, one Bible teacher, says about these verses. Here is a whole world to explore. A broad place to be brought into. Unsearchable, heavens, clouds. Impregnable, mountains. Inexhaustible, the great deep. Yet for all that, welcoming and hospitable. It is, the, it is only man's world that is cramping. Human fickleness makes a drooping contrast to this towering covenant love and faithfulness. Human standards, where all is relative, are marshaled beside the exacting, exhilarating mountains of his righteousness. Human assessments are shallowness itself, in comparison with his judgments. Listen, there is hope. There is hope. Because his character is unchanging, his compassion is unlimited, and his conduct is unfathomable. And finally, when you combine those, you get number four, the Lord's care is undeniable. And that's what he ends with. He says, man and beast, look at the end of verse six, man and beast you save, O Lord. The Lord takes care of all humanity and all creation to preserve wrath, uh, to preserve life and hold back his wrath. Now, save, you want to mark this in your Bible, save here isn't referring to salvation. It's referring to sustaining power. What God is saying, basically, it, it's taking you back to the covenant with Noah. It's taking you back to after the flood where God says, look... You guys are still wicked. You're plotting, you're promoting, you're pursuing sin. This is only going to continue to get worse. But in my grace, I am going to hold back my wrath, and I'm going to let you enjoy this beautiful fall afternoon. Even though the whole time you're enjoying it, your heart's like this to me. Are you with me? That's how he saves. God cares about the people that he's created, and he is committed to filling this earth with his glory through his image bearers. But until that plan and that purpose is fulfilled, God cares undeniably for rebel sinners. There's hope for you this morning. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. And there's hope for the nations. And that hope is beautifully symbolized in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love. There it is. Loving kindness, loyal love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Do you understand? This is not even really salvation yet. Still, what's happening is he's saying, Look, God is such a gracious creator. His wings of protection have been spread over his rebellious con, uh, uh, creation. And they are protected for a short time from the full outpouring of his wrath. That's why every morning we can get up and have a breath. Because he's a refuge, but he wants to be a saving refuge. So we've seen two great reasons to persevere in our commitments, okay? This ought to motivate you for missions. Number one, the need for the refuge grows daily because the condition of humanity is totally depraved. The hope for the refuge never changes because it's rooted in God's unchanging character, which is compassionate and conducts itself with justice and righteousness and truly cares for rebel sinners. But how do rebels take refuge? How do you you go from receiving common grace of a beautiful fall day to receiving saving grace to where your heart is transformed? And that's the third perspective, and it's this. The response to the refuge is always required. The response to the refuge is always required. As we look at verses seven through nine, we see God's grace taking the initiative to extend his wings and offer himself as a refuge. He prepares a table feast and says, come eat your fill. He offers a river of life and says, drink until you're satisfied. He says, I have delights for you. Look at that word delights in verse eight. That just means pleasures. Spiritually, but also in the kingdom that's coming, physical pleasures. Look, look, young people, sin tantalizes and deceives you into thinking, you've got to think this way, do this, be this way to find pleasure in life. God has delights for you that are beyond your understanding. Eye has not seen, mind has not conceived of the things that God has in store for his people. And they're called pleasures. God's not the kill joy. Satan's the kill joy. Sin is the kill joy. You will never lack for the wonderful delights of God if you will pursue Him. But you have to respond. So grace takes the initiative, but man's faith must respond. So look at it. Look at these verses, they're beautiful. The Lord provides whatever what every rebel desperately needs and truly desires, but they're deceived, and they don't think they desire it. They need a refuge, verse 7, that only he can provide. They have a hunger and thirst, in verses 8 and 9, that only he can satisfy. They have a blindness that only he can heal. And they have a sorrow that he wants to replace with his delights. Man, that's just powerful stuff, but you know what? Unless we go and tell, they will never hear. And if they never hear, they can never respond. They must run. So that's why he says in verse 7, take refuge. The wings are extended. The table is set. The river of life is flowing. But you've got to respond. You see, taking refuge requires trusting in Jesus to be your refuge. I'm telling you, this theme of refuge under his wings is a beautiful metaphor, image, motif in the Bible. I've got all these verses. Now, Pastor Bruce said uh, time change meant I had an extra hour to preach, but I don't think he meant that. And so I won't read these passages, but you don't know how tempted I am. They are beautiful passages. And yet what each one of these passages says is that if you don't trust, if you don't run, if you don't submit, if you don't, by faith, take what God is offering, you will have no refuge when the wrath comes. And your thirst will never be satisfied. Your hunger will never be filled. And the pleasures of sin always, always, always fade away, and you will miss the delights of God's goodness. Man, we've got to respond. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, I can't read all those passages, but let me point us to Jesus. In Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus takes this wonderful theme of the refuge of God, and he applies it to himself because he is the I am God of the Old Testament. And he looks over Jerusalem and he says, you got to understand that a response is always required. Listen to what he says. Listen to his heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen, no matter how much... God desires and purposes and elects to save you, you must respond. And beloved, people don't respond if they don't hear, and they don't hear if someone's not sent. And that's why we've got to persevere. We've got to persevere. Giving, praying, sharing here in Kansas City, mobilizing. Welcoming the nations that you heard this week that are being brought to us. And yes, like our Savior, we need to weep over the lost. When's the last time you wept over a lost person? Not over your problems. Not over first world problems. I mean about lost people. The way Jesus wept. The way Paul wept. Well, what does this trusting look like? Let me just give you three things that it looks like. This is how you place your faith in Christ. First of all, take Jesus as your only refuge. There's no other refuge. It's Jesus alone, Christ alone. This is Reformation Sunday. It's Christ alone. Verse 7, take refuge. Secondly, treasure Jesus as your greatest refuge. Treasuring. Don't just take him and leave him in the past, using him as an insurance policy in the future. Instead, right now, treasuring. Look at that word. It's so easy to miss it. Look at verse 7. How precious is your loyal love? How precious, how valuable is God to us? And hey, I'm preaching to myself. And this is an encouragement to you. Listen, if, if, if you don't understand the value of your Savior, you've got to get in the book. And you've got to look at yourself and you've got to understand, man, this is worth it all. You've got to treasure that which is precious. Treasure Jesus as your greatest. Listen, when you treasure, when you know, when, listen, when you take Jesus as your only refuge and you treasure him as your greatest refuge, well, an invitation to pray for the lost, I'm in. An opportunity to give to missions, I'm in. An opportunity to mobilize as a church for greater ministry, I'm in. Why? Because he's the only refuge and he's my greatest treasure. And I want, and here's the thing: what you delight in, you delight telling other people about. Zach delights in his lawn. I know more about Zach's lawn than I know about my lawn. Because he's a dad and he loves his lawn. I believe me. And then, then I have to deal with envy and jealousy, and I, I realize I'm evil to the core when I see his law. My point is, we delight. when What we delight in, we delight telling others, and we invite, delight investing in. Well, here's the last perspective, and it's this. The people who take refuge must persevere. The people who take refuge must persevere. This is an amazing psalm. So here's what happens. We go to the depths of depravity, of human depravity in verses 1 through 4. We go to the heights of God's compassion and invitation to be a refuge in verses 7 through 9 or uh, 5 through 9. And then he ends in prayer in verses 10, 11, and 12. And here's here's what you get in these last three verses. It's a prayer. For God's provision, that's verse 10, O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. It's a prayer for protection in verse 11. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Don't let the enemy crush my neck. Or the hand of the wicked drive me away from your goodness and your grace. And then verse 12, it's a prayer for, Of perseverance in light of God's promise. There in the future, the evildoers will lie. They are thrust down and unable to rise. I know you've promised final victory. Lord, help me persevere until the end. Now, that's the idea of these verses. So what's that telling us? It's simply telling us this. Here's three prayers that we want to end with this morning. Here's three prayers To persevere in your commitment to faith promise, to praying, to being a refuge tomorrow at work, at school. Here's three prayers, because ultimately we can't do it. Only he can. So here's what I'm asking you to do. We're going to end, and we're going to have a time where you can pray through these three prayers. And here they are. Pray for his gracious provision. You say, I thought we already got his loving kindness and grace. Yes, we do. But you know what? He has more grace. He has more grace. And and, and as we struggle with sin, we need more grace. He has more grace. And so you pray for God's gracious provision so you can persevere on your commitment. And I hope by now you're motivated to make one if you haven't. Help me to remain devoted to you, O Lord, by your means of grace. How do we get God's loving kindness? His spirit? His word? Gathering as a church? These are all the means of grace. How do I know God's loyal love? How do I know that he's faithful? You've got to be in the means of grace. The Bible, the spirit, prayer, gathering, the Lord's Supper. On and on. Basically, what we're praying is, Lord, help me to persevere in delight in fulfilling your purposes for the nations. Secondly, pray for his sovereign protection so that you can persevere. You say, well, I don't know anybody that wants to put their foot on my neck or punch me and drive me away. Well, that time may be coming. But what we do know is we have the enemies of sin, Satan, and self. And so, Lord, I have the best of intentions. I've filled out my card. You spoke to my heart about praying for our missionaries. There's some things that you have dealt with me on. But, Lord, I need your protection. Jesus taught us to pray this way. The Lord's prayer ends with deliver us from evil and protect us from the evil one. Deliver us from temptation and protect us from the evil one. And then finally, a prayer for his victorious, pray with his victorious promises. The point of verse 12 is this. Evil's going to be defeated and God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. So, Lord, I'm going to hang on, but I'm not just going to hang on. I'm going to pursue the delights that you have for me, and I'm going to share those delights with others. I'm going to be on mission because, God, you're on mission. And so that's the idea. So here's your three prayers. I like. I just happened to read this this week. We best defend the Lord's glory by speaking first to him about unbelieving men rather than speaking first about him to unbelievers. Before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed. Before he selected disciples, he prayed. All the time he was praying. And so here's three prayers for us to persevere. So we're going to bow our heads. I hope you would join with me as the musicians come. And I'm asking you to bow your heads and open up your hearts. And let's cry out to God. They're going to pray, play. Hopefully they pray, too. But they're going to play instrumentally. And this is just a few minutes for you to begin this process of praying to persevere. And if you haven't made a commitment, then make that commitment in this time. If you've made that commitment, then pray about keeping and persevering in that commitment. And then I'll end with prayer and we will take our offering. So let's, as they play, let's do business with